Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Record rain, heavy winds have pummeled the Carolinas from Hurricane Florence. We take a look at the damage to farms in that area and if there will be any impact on prices for the affected crops that are grown here in California. Here in the West, the drought situation is getting a bit worse. We'll tell you where. Yet another multi-million dollar settlement in a land-ripping Waters of the United States case in Tehama County. This time, it was an out-of-state farm management firm that'll be opening up their wallets. What were the top three farm and ranch products from California last year? Well, you think about that, and we'll tell you later on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Farmers and cooperative extension specialists are finally getting into the rain-soaked fields of North Carolina and South Carolina. Those two states bore the brunt of Hurricane Florence in the last week. In North Carolina, the poultry farms there suffered significant losses. Still, those losses may be just a small percentage of that state's production, that according to the USDA's Rod Bain. The impacts to the poultry industry and to the swine industry is as 99% of the animals in our state of North Carolina under production are healthy and well. That's North Carolina State Veterinarian Doug Meckes Wednesday on the aftermath of Hurricane Florence and its impacts on poultry and hog producers in the Tar Heel State. He acknowledges losses in both sectors due to the storm. We've lost less than 1% of our poultry, and that's about 3.5 million birds. We've lost about 5,500 pigs out of 9 million on the ground. And expects more as floodwaters recede and officials are able to access operations by the weekend or early next week. Meckes adds that state veterinary and other officials hope to get on the ground starting Thursday to begin assessments and start cleanup and carcass disposal as soon as possible. Our marching orders from Commissioner of Agriculture Steve Troxer is not to allow environmental problems to be associated with our mortality management. A broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA meteorologist Eric Lubehusen has an initial picture of Hurricane Florence's damage to agriculture. From what I could tell from the maps put together by our GIS specialists, the greatest threat was to livestock in the southeastern corner of the state. He also expects some lodging of corn, but not on a widespread scale. Certainly there will have been some localized lodging to unharvested and mature crops, but I would guess that producers were able to get a vast majority of that crop harvested. The latest USDA crop progress report shows 66% of corn harvested in North Carolina, slightly ahead of the five-year average pace. Certainly if the crop was able to be harvested, they went out and harvested. Soybeans, uh, not so much. Uh, the harvest progress in North Carolina at 3%, um, they typically harvest this crop a little bit later. Flooding concerns for soybeans include disease and saturation. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. How about that cotton crop in the Carolinas? Is there much damage? Will that affect the price of cotton in California? Stephanie Ho of the USDA has the cotton portion of the Hurricane Florence story. Cotton is slightly ahead of other summer row crops in terms of harvesting. 13% harvested this week. 10% last week, 6% on the five-year average. That was USDA meteorologist Mark Brusberg. Cotton condition good to excellent was rated 39%. That's an increase of 1% over the last week, but these numbers were in before 
the damage wrought by Hurricane Florence. North Carolina was one storm-affected state where cotton bowls were opening. 59% of the bowls had opened, 43% the previous week, and on average it's about 54%. So they were a little bit farther ahead than their five-year average. The cotton bowls in South Carolina were opening at a slower-than-average pace. South Carolina fared a little bit better and uh, looks like a smaller portion of their state's crop was affected. Rain and wind can damage open cotton bowls. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Other crops that took a hit in the Carolinas include peanuts. Now, they don't suffer much from the wind because they grow underground, but water on fields is a problem. The peanuts are now ready to be dug out, but they have to be laid on the fields to dry before harvest. Problem is, the ground may stay wet for quite a while. Hemp is also a big commodity in the Carolinas, and the plants are very affected by the wind. The plants are big, the stems are small, so they've literally blown over. And the major problem in caring for livestock in the Carolinas now is all that wet ground. How are they going to dispatch the feed trucks in the flooded areas? We may not know the full extent of agricultural damage from Hurricane Florence for several weeks. There's not much reaction as far as price swings here in California to what's happening with Hurricane Florence. Valley livestock markets report little change in cattle prices over the last week. Average local spot prices for cotton are a bit higher for San Joaquin Valley cotton, though. It's tit for tat this week, or tariff for tariff. On Monday, President Trump announcing another $200 billion of tariffs on Chinese goods. Because we can't let them do anymore what they've done. The list of disputes, a long one. The U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator, Greg Dowd, outlined just a few of the ag issues for a Senate panel last week. They don't buy the wheat that they said they would buy when they became a member of the WTO. They don't buy the corn. They buy no rice from us. Their tariff on distiller's grain is 80%. Their tariff on ethanol is 70%. They don't buy any poultry from us. We finally got a thimble full of beef in there. The grain sorghum thing is difficult, and we aren't selling them almost what we think would be a billion dollars worth of pet food. Meanwhile, after Trump's tariff announcement Monday, China on Tuesday announcing more tariffs on U.S. goods. Meanwhile, U.S. farmers are seeing tariff-related losses, but USDA's Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, and Greg Dowd told the senators... We are taking some short-term pain, but the benefit if we get issues resolved is enormous. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. According to the California Canning Peach Association's annual survey, of nurseries selling cling peach trees to California's growers, a total of 200,000 trees were sold for 2018 plantings. This is a big drop. It represents a 57% decrease over 2017 sales of over 461,000 trees. The top four varieties in sales volume are Klamath, Ross, Late Ross, and Stanislaw, and that accounted for 55% of total plantings. There's some pessimism about the harvest this year as well due to July and August heat. It's expected that total peach deliveries this year will be less than 250,000 tons. That's nearly 50,000 tons less than last year's 295,000 ton crop. Farm Bureau members from Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. this week are talking with lawmakers about the need to reform ag labor laws. Julie mosser Belay is the chief financial officer and vice president of Sturman Mosser Incorporated. She says the availability of labor is the biggest issue facing her potato farming operations. We have a difficult time, just like many other operations, finding a stable workforce to help us plant and harvest our crops, as well as pack and distribute to all the grocery stores. 
those that we service. We have made a large investment in automation, but it still requires people. These are long hours because you have a short window in which you need to harvest, and it's difficult working conditions. She says the current foreign ag labor program doesn't do enough for her farm. We really require ag labor throughout the entire year, so it is very difficult to implement in the current biannual and 10-month restrictions. So having a modification to that program to be able to be more nimble, reduce the administrative costs in implementing it are very important to us. With the farm bill deadline looming, she says it's important to have a strong specialty crops program for her farm. It's helping with research in different varieties that hopefully we'll be able to use on our farms and in the East Coast. The fresh fruit and vegetable portion within the nutrition section of the farm bill is extremely important to us as well. We absolutely want to encourage everybody to incorporate fresh fruits and vegetables into their diet. These programs that are supporting individuals who may not be able to afford it on their own is extremely important. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. In the Sacramento Valley, the rice harvest is underway. It's just beginning, according to one Sutter County grower. Hi, I'm John Munger with Motna Farms, and we're in a short grain rice field in Sutter County. This field is just about a couple days off from harvest. We took a sample yesterday, and it's a bit high on moisture content, so we're going to be starting back up in a couple days. Overall, the, the season we had here for growing in the valley was, uh, was very good um, with some good mild summer temperatures, uh, not as high as last year. So we expect a good harvest uh, coming up this season. And over the next, I think, uh, week to 10 days, you'll start seeing a lot of farms in the valley picking up on harvest with really the peak of harvest probably somewhere around end of September, first part of October. Elsewhere in the fields, alfalfa was cut and baled, corn was harvested for silage, sunflower harvest continues in Sutter County, down in Tulare County, cotton is blooming, the bowls were set, alfalfa is cut and baled, corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. In the orchards, grape vineyards were being irrigated, table grape harvest continues, raisin grapes are harvested and laid out in the sun for drying, wine grapes continue to be harvested, peaches, nectarines, pears, plums, and pomegranates were harvested, stone fruit orchards were sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized, summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues, some old orchards were removed for replacement with newer trees, persimmon fruit continues to progress well, olives are maturing well, Lemons and limes are being harvested. The Valencia orange harvest continues, though with light volumes. Citrus groves are being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Navel orange fruit thinning is ongoing. Pushed out citrus groves were prepared for planting and some were planted. Almond, walnut, and pistachio orchard irrigation is ongoing. Almond and pistachio harvesting is progressing. Some walnuts are being harvested in Tulare County. In the Sacramento Valley, processing tomatoes continue to be harvested. Brassica and lettuce continues to be harvested over in Monterey County. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested in Tulare County. In the pastures, sheep are grazing on fallowed fields, rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was in poor condition. Cattle continue to be provided supplemental feed to compensate for the deficient nutritional value of rangeland forage. <laughs> Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The weather story across the country can be summed up succinctly. Lots of rain in the east, 
No rain in California. The impact of Hurricane Florence continues along coastal North Carolina as well as northern South Carolina. Wind and heavy rain hammered the state for days as the storm moved slowly inland. The highest rainfall amounts are rather amazing. In Wilmington, 30 to 50 inches of rain fell, 20 to 30 inches in Moorhead, and 15 to 20 inches in a wider area of the Carolinas. Flooding in the area is historic. Rivers are continuing to rise, with evacuations still in place at press time. Meanwhile, the National Weather Service drought monitor shows just the opposite here on the West Coast. It's dry. California drought conditions range from abnormally dry through the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys to extreme drought in southeastern and southwestern California. Extreme drought conditions also exist in much of Oregon as well as parts of Washington state. And looking at the weather for California for the week ahead, it's going to be sunny. Where in the country is it still hot and dry? We have heat which continues from the lower four corners where temperatures have averaged up to 8 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, northeastward into the upper Midwest. USDA meteorologist Eric Lubehusen points out why this kind of weather can be a problem. And what this captures is an enhanced fire danger, particularly from Southern California into the Great Basin and Central Rockies, the areas that are highlighted for the greatest risk of fire danger extend again from Southern California, Nevada, Western Utah, and up into the southwestern and south central parts of Wyoming. He says these areas really could use some moisture. Unfortunately, there isn't any rain really in the offing for these folks, so the fire danger remains very real across much of the southwestern United States, extending again into the central Rockies. As of September 19th, the National Interagency Fire Center reports 81 active large fires. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Grower Greg Van Dyke of VA Farms in Sutter County comments on the start of their sweet rice harvest and how this grain is enjoyed. We're harvesting a wonderful variety that was developed at the rice experiment station in Biggs. It's a glutinous rice called Kalmochi 101. The applications for this rice, it's it's quite uh, universal and flexible. Traditional Japanese use it as a lot of ingredients. They make it into flour. A very uh, well-known use for this is in mochi ice cream at sushi restaurants. They take the rice, they grind it into flour, and they make a dough, and then they wrap the ice cream with it. So it's quite an amazing little variety. Everything looks wonderful so far, and we're really excited to hopefully have a wonderful harvest and a good year. Overall, prospects for the new California rice crop look good, that according to farmers as they see their harvest accelerate. Growers here in the Sacramento Valley say they expect harvest to reach peak levels in the next two or three weeks. Rice marketers say they anticipate strong demand for the crop, noting that carryover stocks of California rice have been mostly depleted. California farmers will harvest rice from about 500,000 acres of land this year. One of the first things President Trump did when taking office was pull out of the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Then last April, the president opened a little crack in the door to rejoin TPP, telling reporters... I don't want to go back into TPP. But if they offered us a deal that I can't refuse on behalf of the United States, I would do it. Fast forward now to the present. The U.S. is in a trade battle of tariffs with China, a nation not in the TPP, a nation that's been the number one foreign customer for U.S. farm goods. We probably made a mistake as American producers to become so dependent on the China market. It was easy, uh, big, and uh, we probably became more dependent on them than they became on us. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling reporters during his trip to Maine this week that if China does not relent and negotiate with the U.S. I'm going to suggest to the president that we regain our partners in the TPP and uh, put a united front against China. 
He did not put a timeline on when he might do that. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Another farming company has been fined millions of dollars for ripping land into Hama County. The Reading Record Searchlight reports the property is adjacent to land whose owners John Twardy of Modesto last year agreed to pay $1.1 million in civil penalties as well as cost to repair damage from using deep rippers to break up soil on his 450 acres south of Red Bluff. That according to the U.S. Department of Justice. However, deep ripping may not quite be accurate here. The judge in Duarte's case agreed with Duarte that the tiller blades only went down four to six inches deep. In this latest case, Goose Pond Ag of Florida and its operation manager, Farmland Management Services, an affiliate of John Hancock Life Insurance Company, purchased the 1,500 acres from Duarte in 2012 for $8.7 million. As mentioned earlier, Duarte settled the federal case for $1.1 million after originally facing $2.8 million in civil penalties and as much as $20 million to repair damage to the land. Duarte says, though, the field near Red Bluff that he wanted to grow wheat on it still stands empty. Someone in the farm safety field, Scott Heiberger, the National Farm Medicine Center, provides some general observations and recommendations for National Farm Safety Week for 2018 on the calendar for the third week of September. For example, in trends related to farm safety, over the last 15 years or so, the rates of injury among farm children have gone down, and that's important because it's not just the sheer numbers, because you might expect that with fewer kids being on farms, but the actual rates of injuries. He believes one of the factors behind the injury rate decline of children on the farm is concerted efforts between farm safety and ag organizations. Producer groups are oftentimes partners with us and they get the word out to their members. Likewise, over the years, the attitudes of farmers and ranchers about safety in their operations has also progressed. This generation of millennial farmers grew up using car seats and using bike helmets, so we're thinking maybe their view of safety they might be a little more open to some of these safety initiatives. Yet there remains concerns about farm safety, especially related to children ages 10 years old or younger who are at the work site. Most of the injuries to kids on farms are to that younger age group, and most of those kids are not working. So that means they're just hanging out, they're playing, maybe their parents have them as toddlers to, quote, keep an eye on them there in the work site. We know that, practically speaking, there's not a daycare on every corner, but one of the things we're really harping on is really rethink bringing that very small child into the work site and do your best to try during those periods of time when you're doing maybe especially dangerous stuff to find some alternative to taking them in there. Heiberger says various tools, checklists, reminders, and tips for farm safety are available to producers via health and safety organizations and local cooperative extension. He knows one example, a monthly farm safety check offered by the University of Minnesota. Every month there's a different topic, might be electrical safety, grain handling, children on farms, etc. And it's a very short checklist that maybe with five or eight key items that a farmer can look at. So for electricity, do all my cords have three prongs? Is everything in a conduit? It the way it's supposed to be, just things like that. He acknowledges every farm is different, therefore every safety checklist for a farm will be different. Yet he adds reminders such as checklists can help a producer kickstart their farm safety thinking that is specific to their operation. Just a way to keep safety top of mind and just keep it short and sweet and keep it on the radar. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We're in apple picking season now here in California, and there's a new leader among the apple varieties. It's not Red Delicious anymore. It's been ousted by the Gala. That's according to the U.S. Apple Association, which released its production forecast for 2018. 
And here in California, the Gala variety is the number one grown apple, followed by Fuji, Granny Smith, and Cripps Pink. California is the fifth largest producer of apples in the United States, also the second largest exporters of apples. 14,000 acres are dedicated exclusively to apples here in California. And even though we think of the last month of summer and the early months of fall as apple time here in California, the harvest really extends from July through October. Of all the apples grown in California, 75% of them are consumed right here in the United States. 25% are for the export market. And California exports its apples to over 27 different countries. Farmers markets bring potential buyers of products together with farmers that produce those products. And in many cases, those farmers go out of their way to answer questions and tell us all about the products. For example, this grower of tomatoes. The Romas have less liquid, so they're a meatier tomato, so they're real good for cooking. Yellow tomatoes. Very now that farmer's doing a great job and she sells more products that way. On the other hand, some vendors that I've watched, they don't even talk to their customers. They just sell the product and keep it moving. Arthur Neal is with the Agriculture Department's Marketing Service. He told the National Direct Ag Marketing Summit this week that for some farmers, talking to customers is not in their comfort zone. That's a skill set that some vendors have, but not all vendors. And training can take place in that space to help them be more comfortable doing so. He says it's been proven over and over again. A farmer can make more sales, more money. If someone takes the time to educate a buyer why they should really invest in their product. In Arlington, Virginia, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So what were the most valuable California agricultural commodities for 2017? I'll give you a second or two to think about that while I'll tell you about the history of the numbers. It's from the Economic Research Service of the USDA, and they've released their first production data summaries for 2017. And California, for the year, had $50.13 billion. That's an increase of $3.7 billion from 2016. California remains the leading agricultural state in the nation with about 13% of total total United States production. California leads the country in many commodities. Now, do you have the answer? What was the top commodity for 2017? It was dairy products and milk at $6.5 billion. Number two was grapes. Number three, almonds, followed by strawberries, cattle and calves, lettuce, walnuts, tomatoes, pistachios, and broiler chickens. California leads the country in dairy production, and it provides roughly half of the nation's fruits, nuts, and vegetables. The House Ways and Means Committee recently approved a bill supported by the American Farm Bureau Federation that would make tax reforms permanent for farmers and ranchers. The Protecting Family and Small Business Tax Cuts Act of 2018 would remove the temporary status of tax cuts passed by Congress last year. Pat Wolf, Senior Director of Congressional Relations for AFBF, says the bill would make the tax cuts fair. For businesses that are incorporated, the tax cuts are permanent. But for other businesses, small business, farms who file as individuals, the tax cuts are temporary. So what the Ways and Means Committee did last week was take the first step in making the important tax cuts for farm and ranch businesses permanent. The changes included in the bill offer several benefits to farmers and ranchers. The tax rates that small business pays are temporary. So what the Ways and Means Committee did last week would make the lower tax rates permanent. They also would make permanent the new 20% 
20% business deduction for farm revenue. That'll go away in 2026 if Congress doesn't make it permanent. Wolf says it's important for farmers and ranchers to show their support for the bill. This is the first step, passing the Ways and Means Committee. The next step is for the full House of Representatives to pass the bill. Right now, it's uncertain as to whether or not they will or can do that. So it's important for farmers and ranchers everywhere to tell their elected officials to make lower taxes permanent for farmers and small business. Michael Clements, Washington. Pointing out the unique needs of farmers in urban and suburban regions, a coalition of agriculture and urban groups has urged Congress to include new urban agricultural initiatives in the 2018 Farm Bill. A conference committee has been working to finalize the new farm policy bill. Supporters of a proposed Federal Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production say it could help foster food production in ways that would benefit cities and rural areas alike. Familiar with vertical farming? You're growing plants in controlled environments indoors. And the vertical aspect is when you're growing on multiple stories or multiple levels. And this could take the form of columns on which you're growing plants or on stacked levels. Sarah Fetterman is a USDA researcher in the office of the chief scientist involved in vertical farming systems. So think produce growing hydroponically via H2O or in soils or even through nutrient-rich gel substrate. Most of the crops that you're seeing in vertical farming operations are microgreens, lettuces, some wheat grasses, also herbs. So these are specialty crops that can be grown quickly. These are high-value crops. And vertical farms are perhaps most common in urban areas, with plant life growing in everything from former ship and trucking cargo containers to previous warehouse buildings. That is one reason why Fetterman and fellow agriculture department researchers such as David Babson are exploring the possibility of vertical farms as part of an urban ecosystem. What we're interested in is developing engineered systems that allow us to industrialize ag production in urban centers. So actually being able to build up controlled environments that allow us to build large supply chains for food and products in cities. Babson provides one example of a potential urban ecosystem for a vertical farming operation. How would we source the water for the vertical farm with wastewater and provide opportunities for treating that wastewater and providing multiple benefits simultaneously? So the idea with the vertical farm and the urban ecosystem is engineering new opportunities for new types of systems rather than applying traditional farming techniques, but then just putting them into a city environment. And these concepts have drawn a wide range of interest, from an entity conducting its own form of vertical farming in a controlled environment. Station crew members will be eating the lettuce that they grew on the space station. NASA growing salad-type produce aboard the International Space Station and the Department of Energy. Why? Some of the growing techniques that are used in controlled environments allow you to optimize the water use through the growing plants. If it's in a controlled environment, there are ways to recover that clean water that can then be recycled. And what that does in an urban environment is displace the energy requirements to produce that same amount of clean water. So when you're looking at the whole net energy of the system, there's significant water savings and therefore there's significant energy savings. Now, Babson and Fetterman say while expansion of these vertical farming urban ecosystems should occur over the next decade, some of the technologies, such as breeding crops specific for these growing environments, are still years away. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Once again, we're coming to you from the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington, D.C. We're in the Vegucation Tent talking about... Tomato. Yeah, one of our two USDA Vegucators today, Toyana Thompson. Now, this has happened to me quite a lot. I go into the store, I grab some... Tomato. Yeah, in a bit of a hurry and end up with some... Tomatoes. That are too ripe, not even close to being ripe, either one, and end up throwing some of them out. And I see your face scrunching up there, Toyana, you, that really rankled you, doesn't it? I don't want any of my money to go to waste and any of the fresh produce to go to waste. Yeah, so you say I should take my time, look for tomatoes that are what? Bright, shiny, with the firm skin, and kind of stay away from the ones that are a little dull in color, not as red, and that have a wrinkle. Yeah, don't buy tomatoes that look like my face. <laughs> Yeah, you would really want to avoid that, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, okay, now with Toyana today, another vegetator, Laura Walter. I'm feeling good from my head to my toes. Yeah, well, we'll go on as if nothing had happened. You also are well-versed on the uh, tomato. It's the second most consumed vegetable after potatoes. Laura, you said vegetable. Would you like to change your testimony? Botanically, they are a fruit. Maybe, but let's go back to 1883. Congress passes a law putting a tax on imported vegetables, but not on fruit. Now, John Nix is a food importer. He sues the Port of New York and its tax guy, Mr. Hedden, for all the tax he had paid over the years on all the tomatoes he had imported because, as Laura pointed out... Botanically, they are a fruit. Yeah, so the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And how did that 1893 case come out, Laura? They're actually vegetables. What? Well, whatever they are, we do consume a lot of them. Last year, each American consumed 93 and a half pounds of tomatoes, both fresh and processed. That consumption might have even been more, but tomatoes got a slow start in this country. People were scared to eat them. Laura, you've got a personal story about that. I had a great uncle who refused to eat tomatoes because he thought they were poisonous because they're part of the nightshade family, which also includes other poisonous plants, that they were lumped in with all of that. Of course, today they're lumped into all kinds of foods and dishes. Laura, you're uh, you're slicing up some tomatoes there, getting ready to make something to give out to people today. What's it uh, going to be? A Spanish tomato salad. Spanish. Very simple with our, our lovely slicing tomatoes, some basil, some garlic, oil, and a little salt and pepper, but we're adding a twist. We're throwing in some beautiful toasted white bread to make a panzanella. 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 So panne is bread, and so panzanella is a salad that includes bread. Wow, for more great tomato ideas, go online to What's Cooking USDA and type in... Tomatoes. <laughs> Thanks to Toyota and Laura there. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Tomato uh, Agriculture in Washington. There's a potential for a record walnut crop here in California, but tariffs are affecting the sales outlook. The California Walnut Commission says it's cautiously optimistic that negotiations will resolve the issues. Crop forecasts estimate that California's farmers will harvest 10% more walnuts this year than last year. The commission says retaliatory tariffs affect three top international walnut markets, China, India, and Turkey. As a result, you're going to see lots of ads encouraging walnut consumption here in the United States. 
United States, and those ads are slated to start this month. In a Senate Ag Committee hearing the other day, questions about the USDA's program to help compensate farmers for losses because of tariffs. Can you offer some background on how the department determined the payment rates for the different commodities eligible for the program? Committee Chairman Pat Roberts directing that question to USDA's Chief Economist Rob Johansson. Several senators said they heard complaints from various commodity groups about the payment rates. For example, why soybeans will get $1.65 a bushel, corn only a penny, even though corn prices have dropped more than beans. Johansson says the calculation did not go on price, which can be affected by many things. We wanted to focus on a trade damage approach. In that sense, those commodities that were exported to the countries that are retaliating are going to show the highest trade damage effects from these tariffs. And that's why you see such a large component of the program uh, being directed to producers of soybeans, since soybeans was our largest export to China. On the other hand, for uh, producers of corn, for example, we don't sell as much corn to the retaliating countries, the EU and China. Uh, and that's why the payments to corn producers are so much smaller. And Johansson gave the actual figures. The value of soybean exports that were being affected by the tariffs was roughly $14 billion. And on corn, for example, it was $300 million because corn shipments to the countries that are retaliating were relatively low compared to soybeans. But some other senators said there were other regional factors that should have been figured in that might have changed the payment situation. However, when we put the current methodology together, we did not do regional effects. There were a number of factors to consider there, transportation certainly being one of them, um, availability of storage, storage capacity being another, and availability of rail shipment capacity to the Pacific Northwest relative to barge capacity down to the Gulf. And Johansson said it would have taken many analysts a very long time to go into that kind of analysis for the seven commodities, cotton, corn, milk, hog, soybeans, sorghum, and wheat. And Johansson said, frankly, we wanted to put the program out there in, in a, a fairly rapid fashion. However, that said... Those are all factors that we are actively uh, examining and looking at as we look to the calculations for a potential second round of payments coming later this fall. A second payment, not a certainty, but the possibility of it was mentioned more than once during the hearing. If you'd like a detailed look at the calculation process that was used, go online to usda.gov and search for trade damage. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. In 2014, the overall value of California rice was $1.1 billion dollars in 2016 that dropped to 704 million however the export value in that same time period for california rice went up from 681 million in 2014 to 715 million in 2016 albeit a drop from 2015 when it was 751 million dollars jim morris of the california rice commission says a lot of factors come into play when considering the overall picture of california rice so I think, first of all, why the crop value was lower was we produced less rice. We had some challenging years with weather, uh, late starts because of wet springs, also some challenges uh, with uh, excessive heat during the growing season. So I think that contributed to the lower value of the crop. Uh, the export situation, that's very complicated because rice is thinly traded around the world. Less than 10% of the rice produced in the world is actually traded. So there's a lot of other factors that contribute to the value of rice that you're shipping to other countries. And Morris reemphasizes that the price of rice is determined not just here in the United States, but by growers around the world. Uh, for example, uh, Egypt is an interesting situation that we're monitoring. They may be cutting down on their rice production because of some water policy changes. It's a changing situation that we're watching because if Egypt shifts 
some of their rice out of production, it could lead to more opportunities for California. Another competitor that grows a similar product is Australia, and they've had droughts over the years. So if these other producing areas have challenges, it provides more opportunity for California rice exports. Conversely, if some of the other producers that we have a like product will produce more, then it could be challenging or more challenging for us you know, to uh, get all the market share that we want. So it really just depends. I mean, we have very consistent supply and quality year in and year out, but there is volatility with some of the other markets that we're competitive with. Back in 1980, when this song was a hit, the government put out its first version of the dietary guidelines for Americans. The guidelines advised basically taking in less fat, salt, and sugar, more whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. The guidelines were issued with the hope that we would listen and start to reverse our eating patterns, which were, of course, more fat, salt, and sugar, not many whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. That was 38 years ago. So are we making any progress? And does where we get our food make much difference in our diets? We'll take a look. On this edition of Agriculture USA, I'm Gary Crawford. You know I love that organic cooking. I always ask for more. And they call me Mr. Natural on down to the health food store. I only eat good sea salt, white sugar, don't touch my lips. Oh, that sounds so healthy. But the last group of experts to revise the government's dietary guidelines back in 2014 told us straight out. The U.S. population is nowhere near to consuming the the USDA food pattern that we've been talking about. The vast majority of the U.S. population does not meet recommended intakes for fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and dairy. In the daytime, I'm Mr. Natural, just as healthy as I can be. But at night, I'm a junk food junkie. Good Lord, have pity on me. And according to a new study, the dietary guideline advice hasn't changed that much in almost 40 years. We just aren't able to do it. Or we're just not willing to do it. This from Agriculture Department researcher Lisa Mancino. The study involves looking at the food buying during a week's time of over 4,800 households across the country. All incomes, all situations. Now, there is what is called a healthy eating index that's used by nutritionists and others, a way to score a person's diet. The scale is from zero, very bad, to 100 uh, being unattainable perfection. Where do you think the average American scores on this index? Most studies and this one included find that we're getting about a 53 out of 100. Did I hear that right? 53 out of 100. I heard it right. 53, that's a big F on the diet report card, and most of us already know why. We're getting dinged for eating too few of the foods that we're encouraged to eat, like fruits, whole fruits, dark green vegetables, whole grains, and for getting too much of the foods that we're supposed to eat in moderation, salts and added sugars, alcohol and saturated fats and yummy things like that. No wonder they're yummy. However, Lisa is trying to get at other factors that might affect people's diet choices and quality. Is it they just don't have access to good food? Is it that there are a lot of food away from home options getting in the way of them getting to the grocery store? So Lisa has been looking at that survey, 4,800 representative households looking at what food was bought, where they bought it. Maybe our diets are shaped by where we get our food. And so... We looked at the healthfulness of foods acquired at large grocery stores, smaller grocery stores, gas stations, convenience stores, dollar stores. And then we also looked at your restaurants and fast food. They used that healthy eating index to measure the healthfulness of the foods offered by the various vendors on the whole. And as you might expect... The foods we get at large grocery stores are definitely the most nutritious. 
food from large grocery stores score about 52 out of 100, which is still an F. But if you compare that to the smaller specialty stores, they get about a 43. Convenience store gas stations get about a 37 HEI score. So where does most of our food come from? So we get about 65% of all of our weekly calories from large grocery stores. Hmm. And what was surprising is, you know, we've heard about the problems of so-called food deserts where there are no good grocery stores around and people supposedly don't have access to big stores and fresh produce and such. But guess what? We found that even households that don't have good access to grocery stores, they still consider a large grocery store as their primary shopping store. And they may even bypass their closest large grocery store to get to another one. So most people do get to a grocery store, but they may just bypass the healthy stuff at the store. And so having access to a good grocery store isn't going to necessarily make you eat healthier. But Lisa says doing more shopping at a regular grocery store does at least increase your chances of buying fruits and vegetables. Just more exposure to them there. But Lisa also says restaurants, which are kind of low on the healthy eating index, are grabbing a bigger percentage of our food spending than ever before. It's gone from 32 percent in 1980 to about 45% currently. And that's not going to help in our quest for better diets unless restaurants start offering a lot more healthy choices. Food stores are certainly ramping up their selections of fresh fruits and vegetables, but getting us to buy them, that may take another study to figure out because... In the daytime, I'm Mr. Natural, just as healthy as I can be. But at night, I'm a junk food junkie. Good Lord, have pity on me. This has been Agriculture USA. Gary Crawford here reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Dozens of California-based projects to promote the production and marketing of specialty crops will benefit from government grants announced last week. The projects aim to benefit growers and consumers of specialty crops such as fruits, vegetables, and nuts. The 83 new projects include programs to promote consumption as well as encourage access to specialty crops to protect crops from pests and diseases and to train new and current farmers. Thanks for listening to the KS STE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.